Welcome to the Reflective Teacher Podcast, brought to you by the Jewish United Fund of Chicago. I'm Martha Weil, and together with my real-life co-teacher and co-host, Lindsay Elliott, we're bringing you interviews with experts in early childhood education. We hope these stories will inspire you and give you that aha moment that we as teachers find so refreshing and clarifying. Over the course of this episode, we hope you'll reflect and make connections that will help you bring intention and motivation to your classroom each day. On today's episode, our guest is Ellen Galinsky, author of the book Mind in the Making, The Seven Essential Life Skills Every Child Needs. In our interview with her, Ellen chats about her background and how she came to write Mind in the Making. She considers herself to be an adventurer, not of mountains or uncharted lands, but of questions, and we were so happy to talk about all of her adventures in this episode. Listen as we go over each of the seven essential life skills Ellen outlines in her book. They're amazing resources, not only for parents and teachers of children, but also just for ourselves as ever-growing individuals. So, without any further ado, here is our interview with Ellen Galinsky. Yeah. And I know that lots of people are a big fan of this book, like, um, at least in our community. Yeah, so when we, when we made the switch from, like, more of an academic early childhood to a progressive one, um, a consultant that we were working with had actually given us your book, Mind in the Making, and it was, like, very life-changing for me in the respect that I, you know realize how important these life skills are not only to adulthood but for our youngest learners to be really focused on and like working on Um, and then it really helped a lot with me for documentation purposes too so I use them like I think about the life skills when I'm observing children and when I'm like doing our journey binder pages to let the children like the parents know how they're doing in class so it's really yeah it's really been wonderful to a wonderful resource for me Um, oh thank you yeah so thank you why don't we start by having you get into a little bit about how you got into these life skills for children and um, a little bit about like your background in general, whatever you want to share. I began as a teacher at uh, the Bank Street School for Children in New York City. Awesome. I knew that I wasn't always going to be a teacher. <laughs> uh, I was interested in writing for children, in writing for adults, in um, bringing about system change. But I felt that the best thing that I could do would be to really know children in the way that a teacher does. And so I spent four years teaching at the School for Children at Bank Street, and I taught uh, preschool, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. And then I created uh, the Family Center at Bank Street with some other people, which is an infant-toddler program, and I was the coordinator of that for about five years. So having having run a program in early childhood, having been uh, a, a teacher, could not have been more important experience for everything I've ever done. It helped me at, learn to ask questions, uh, to really look and see what I was seeing and understand it deeply, in connecting what I was seeing to research, in uh, communicating what I was doing. I always think that if you could get Isabel off of the top of the jungle gym when it's time to come inside, um, that you can pretty much manage anything (laughs) with adults or children. (laughs) That's amazing. You ask how I came to write Mind in the Making. Yeah. And it 
uh, I have turned the questions that I've asked into my life's work. So I think of myself as an adventurer, someone who uh, follows questions rather than climbing mountains or seeing new lands, although I like doing both of those. Uh, I have been an adventurer in research, taking things that I really don't know that I think would be important for me and for other people to know and it, in a sense a new territory not something I'm not trying to dot I's and cross T's in research but really uh, take some of the, the important new emerging trends or things that are uh, obstacles that are stopping the field or things that are not helping children thrive and turn them into yeah. studies so I've done research of pretty much from the from the from my early days in teaching in fact my first my second year of teaching I got a halftime out of the classroom grant from the Ford Foundation to be able to conduct research and to be able to translate what I was learning into um, communication materials for for the field. The Ford Foundation, who gave this grant, felt that too many things were being written about education that were not by people who were living in a classroom every day, and they were wanting to support communications by people who had very direct and real that's very experience. cool yeah it was very cool yeah. so I so I taught half day and I spent the other half day trying to figure out how to communicate how to how to study and how to communicate uh, and ended up making films and and wow. film strips and uh, not just written words writing a regular series for a magazine um, mm-hmm. helping Bank Street we, we were one of the founders of Head Start we were also mm-hmm. one of the founders and, and program models for Follow Through, the Post Head Start program. And so I was developing both studies and communications for them and then moved into the research division of Bank Street, ended up uh, uh, helping to create the field of work and family life and yes. then starting the Families and Work Institute. So I've always got five or six questions that I'm trying to find out. <laughs> I think that that is like amazing work, um, advocating for children and families and just the lives they live. And then from that perspective, too, of like someone who knows children and families. And I also think something that we love is just, um, you know, a lot of things that come out um, about like best practices a lot of beliefs are that like children should be reading younger children should be like put in all these academic kind of situations at a younger and younger age but the truth is like that isn't necessarily what's best and um we really like that you're talking about how they're much more successful in the long run when they've had experience in um the areas that you outline in your book yes i i was talking to my daughter the other day because um, we have a six-year-old child in our life no. and uh, and uh, <laughs> I remember when Zay was born and Laura would try to read to him let's say he's one month old <laughs> and uh, and he, he was not interested particularly in the books and right. she was so worried that he wouldn't be a reader <laughs> right and she told me the other day that he got up at 6 a.m. and and grabbed a book and read 
read for an hour, and I, I was I was laughing because I said, "Remember that you worried that he he wouldn't be a reader, and here he is, yeah, right. taking right. twenty books a week out of the library and getting up at six a.m. to read." <laughs> you just it's just creating a culture uh, around him where reading is uh, so exciting, and as can he can pursue his interests through reading and. Um, he tells stories and we write them down and those sorts of things, you, you know, you didn't have to worry about having a child who was a reader. Yeah. <laughs> she laughed. She oh. laughed. Uh, so the way that Mind in the Making got started was um, that I was doing a study, I have done a series and I'm doing one now, of studies that ask young people about how they see the world that they're growing up in, particularly the the, the tough issues that they're facing growing up to, in today's world. And this one was going to be on learning. This study was going to be on youth and learning. And I went out, as I always do before I do a study, and talked to the people who are uh, instrumental in the study, in this case, the, the young people themselves. And I asked them about learning. And I was getting uh, really surprising, I was having surprising focus groups and conversations where it almost seemed to me that the kids were dead on arrival when it came to talking about learning. The fire that children yeah. are born with was yeah. gone, just was gone. And and I know that we as a society were taking it away. I mean, kids are born with it, so somebody mm-hmm. has to remove it. And um, <laughs> and what are we doing to remove it? And how can we how can we keep that fire burning even more brightly? So that became the question that has fueled the nineteen years, the last nineteen years of of my life and my work and decided first to um, go to the research because I am a researcher. I always wonder what the research said about engagement and I found at that time there were only, uh, there were large studies but they weren't nationally representative. Now they're nationally representative studies and they are showing that about a 40 to 60 percent of kids are not truly engaged in learning. Totally. So um, we are doing something that's pretty serious. And I was feeling that this was as serious as worrying about kids and, and literacy and numeracy and the um, achievement or opportunity gap that if you're, if you're passionate about learning um, and you have that support to help you learn, then, um, then you can learn. I mean, everybody can learn. Um, so, so I turned to the research. And, uh, but before I, did, before I did that, I went out and uh, with the organization Zero to Three did focus groups of parents and asked how they wanted to hear about the research. Now, I asked that for a particular reason. I had been instrumental in sharing the research about brain development of young children and uh, and had uh, helped the White House do the 1997 conference. I'd worked with the Carnegie Corporation on starting points, which was its Zero to Three initiative, uh, had worked with Rob Reiner on the strategic uh, d- design of the I Am Your Child campaign. So it had been, for the past seven or eight years, involved in sharing brain development or, or learning about brain development and, and sharing that with people. But I wanted to know how parents, did parents want to know this, and if so, how? And a parent said to me at that, not to me personally, because it was a focus group, I was in the room looking through the glass, but Mm -hmm. said said to the hypothetical me listening, um, pointing her finger at the window and shaking it, research, she said. First you say eat red meat, and then you say don't eat red meat, and then you Mm -hmm. say drink red wine, and then you say don't drink red wine. She said, I want to know who these researchers are and how they know what they know about my child. 
Yeah. And that was such a turning point for me. I mean, that was so phenomenal because that's right. I didn't want to do something that was didactic where the so-called experts would be telling the parents what to do with their children, which most most things are. Most things do that use that uh, didactic or pouring information into the empty vessel approach. I know that's not how we learn. <laughs> and so um, I designed videos uh, and got funding very quickly because funders agreed with me um, that we did videos where we take virtual film trips to the lives, uh, to the labs of, of some of the best researchers in this country and abroad. And that, um, and, but it did not intend to write a book that, you yeah. know, this is now 2000, 2001, wow. up through 2005. And, but I began to see in this journey and I had an incredible opportunity to travel through research land that wasn't climbing a high mountain, but it was traveling through research land that there were studies uh, on what helped kids thrive. And it was not just giving them information. It was uh, promoting skills that we're all born with, but have to be developed executive function skills or executive function based skills. The research on executive functions were just emerging Mm. at, at that time, or at least certainly weren't as well known as they are now. And, um, and across academic disciplines, even though people might use different language and different conceptual frameworks, it was becoming very clear that we need what I now call life skills as well as uh, content knowledge. And once I saw that, once I could see the pattern across the research, and I think if, if you're studying, you're always looking for patterns. You're always looking for, mm-hmm. um, you know, what's the story? What, what are the patterns? Um, that, that was what... Uh, shifted me to decide to write a book and so uh, I wrote a proposal on in about 2007-2008 for a book and um, and began the book in 2008 so that was what led to Mind in the Making as a book but it was never intended to be a book it was supposed to be training for you know sharing these videos with teachers and in training modules that's that was what I started out to do. That's so cool. Um, now I have like 30 million more questions. But I'm like, <laughs> with this backstory, <laughs> I want to know where I can find these videos because that's genius. I mean, part of the reason we started this podcast is because I don't feel that like reading a professional development book as a teacher is always exactly what I want to do, but I do always want to gain knowledge of the best practices and all that stuff. So we wanted like a different way. Um, to reach people, and I feel like being a researcher um, and using video to show people, like, this is the person that's actually doing the research, it's just, it's it's so smart. I love that. I'm so glad you do. Yeah, Yeah. where do those videos live? Well, they live at the Bezos Family Foundation. I joined the foundation um, in, um, the Mind in the Making team joined the foundation in 2016, the beginning of 2016, and um, we are, we developed, we had already developed, but we've been continuing to perfect, uh, training modules. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we don't actually call them training, but, uh, we call it a learning journey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we're just now starting to put these online and there'll be a free resource for people. Yes. Uh, awesome. very soon. That's so they, fantastic. Yeah. That's, and that's at mindinthemaking.org, right? Yes, they will be um, available. I don't know how soon. We're just figuring out the form, but that will be the way that we make them accessible unless we do some other things. There there are um, 42 
videos that we did in a longer form. Um, most of our videos are two to three, four minutes. Mm-hmm, but we yeah. did, um, we, and you, if you Google for them, you'll find them because some of them live online, even though they're, they're uh, not supposed to. But <laughs> you, uh, you can find them, I find them. Anyway, the, the uh, there's there's a set of, of 42 called experiments in children's learning that we also created that were for um, they're about five to seven minutes and they are much more of a uh, meant to go along with a college or university class so you find out what the researcher right. the question the researcher was asking what the hypothesis is what why the researcher used the methodology he or she used. What, what what they found and what the implications are. So we've done that. Very cool. Wow. Okay, that's great. We'll definitely put a link to that so listeners can access it. Perfect. And then lastly, before we just get into the skills, um, you mentioned that nationally they've been finding that students are not engaged. And I'm wondering, like, if there are other countries that, like, have found success with um, engagement and if you know anything about those rates um, yes, I mean, people always talk about Finland and Denmark and countries like that. But, okay. Uh, but um, I, and I, well, I've been to both of them, but I haven't really studied the school system. Got it. Um, I think that there are places, I, I remember being at the White House once and Bill Clinton said, for every problem you have, someone in this country has solved it and solved it well. So my feeling is, is that their classes, like the classes in Reggio Emilia, for example, where kids are truly engaged in learning. So we don't have to go to another country. We just have to find the places in the United States where people are doing it really well. I love that. That's great. Um, Okay, so focus and self-control is the first skill you talk about. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you give a little bit of a background on on those? Yes, I can. And also, um, let me just talk about what an executive function-based skill or a life skill is. Yes, please. Um, a, a life skill is uh, the the um, how the the how of learning. It, it, it's a, a learning skill, a life skill, a skill that you use when you're two, and a skill that you use when you're sixty-two. <laughs> it's um, it's something that that. Uh, brings together your social, your emotional, and your cognitive capacities in a goal-directed way to solve problems. Uh, It calls on executive functions of the brain, which are working memory, being able to hold information in your mind and use it to solve a problem. It calls on what's called cognitive flexibility, which is being able to see problems in different lights, looking at it from different perspectives, um, the problem or the situation or the person. And it also uh, calls on um, inhibitory control or self-control, which is um, not going on automatic, but doing what you need to do to achieve your goal. So the reason that executive function skills are so important, I think, is because they're goal-directed. If we have goals um, and we can follow through on them, we're more likely to thrive. We're more likely to succeed. That's something that's so important to all of us is to be purposeful, to have meaning and purpose in our lives, whether we're little or old. And, uh, and that's why I think executive function skills, which are the skills that help us do so, are so critical. So focus and self-control, call on those three uh, basic uh, executive function skills. Um, they help us pay attention um, and to um, 
to think flexibly uh, and then to um, and then to again use self-control to do what we need to do so it's a it's a part of everyday life is um, if I decide I want to exercise it means um, not driving somewhere walking or you know it just what, what am I going to do to achieve a goal? And what is a child going to do to achieve a goal? So if you look at the more successful programs, the gold standard programs, like the Abyssidarian program or um, the Perry Preschool Project, um, in schools, one, many of them have kids planning their own activities. There's a, there's a meeting time or a time where the child um, decides what he or she is going to do. And then, um, and then sets up a goal and then says how the child is going to achieve it and then comes back and says, how did it go? Mm -hmm. um, so reviews it. So that, that, um, that agency, that ability to, to set goals and follow through, um, paying attention, um, not getting drawn into distractions, um, um, using self-control, all of those things are so important. Right. Uh, we can promote... Uh, focus and self-control in lots of ways um, and we can um, we uh, one of the ways is games if you look at the traditional games that have survived through the generations like um, Simon Says mm -hmm. as, a, as a really great example uh, what do you have to do with Simon Says you have to know the rules so you're using your working memory you have to follow the rules because the rules change, therefore you have to think flexibly. Mm -hmm. Because you, you can't respond because unless the person says Simon says, and you have to uh, use self control because there's a tendency, particularly if the adult in the front or the child in the front is is uh, touching their nose and but didn't say Simon says, uh, you can't do it. You have right. to use self control. And and <laughs> Megan McClellan has developed it's called the head to toe, knee to shoulder task which she uses to measure executive function skills uh it's a it's a variation on simon says uh that you don't use simon says but you have to the, the adult will do one thing and the kids are supposed to do the opposite so touch your touch your head uh the kids are supposed to touch their toes once they've learned the rules of the game um and that that is predictive of language and literacy as well as mathematics um and particularly for kids who are a bit behind in that it's it's uh, a really good assessment, and kids in her studies who make gains on the head-to-shoulder, um, head-to-toe, knee-to-shoulder task, um, uh, make gains in, in academic skills. So it's very related. Uh, it's a life skill, but it's also related to an academic skill. That's just one example. Yeah, yeah. I totally think it's in so important for academics. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about technology. Um, and focus and like what your thoughts are on um, children and, and the use of technology. Screen time. <laughs> Screen time. Screen time. Uh, <laughs> I think um, if it weren't for screen time, there'd be something else. It was television when my own children were growing up. It was seen as just as evil as screen time is now. Um, I, I think it gives, I, I feel very differently about it than most people do. I think that there can be some wonderful things um, on the screen. I think it's a matter of a child having a balanced life, not doing this all the time, mm -hmm. doing it with uh, with limits, and um, and 
parents paying attention or teachers paying attention to what the children are doing. There's an awful lot of violence out there, as I know, because I have a six-year-old. Yeah. Um, but I think screen time is like the perfect opportunity to help a child learn self-control. And I can give you a personal example because it's an issue we have struggled with. Giving okay. up that screen is like agony, <laughs> agony on steroids. <laughs> you know, it's, it's designed to be addictive. Uh, it's designed mm-hmm. to make you not want to give it up. You, know, you want to keep playing that game and race over those things. Or, yeah. you know, I never thought of it that way, but it's course. so true. <laughs> right. I it's mean, totally designed yeah. to be addic- addictive. Anytime I talk to a kid who's got an iPad in their hand, it's like I'm not there. <laughs> yeah, I know. You don't exist. And so that's not all right. They need to learn to uh, give it up and right. to be able to talk to you. That, that's So uh, I think for an older child, and I mean like four, five, six-year-old child, mm-hmm. you know, up, up, but not not a baby. Um, and I don't know that babies should have very much of this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't. We didn't. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I think that there, that there can be real advantages to it. Really? Um, in fact, yeah. I mean, um, uh, um, one of the best researchers uh, in child development um, you developed games um, on the screen to teach the skill of focus and self-control. You have to anticipate what's coming next. You have to be able to stop and not go on automatic. You know, they, there can be really good games that help you learn to uh, to, to manage. So here, here's, uh, I'll just give you the example from our family. Yeah. We had, um, my grandson was addicted. Mm-hmm. Um, um, maybe the word addicted is wrong because he didn't go crazy if he didn't have it, but mm-hmm. he had a hard time giving it up. And he, uh, and so we had a family meeting. I, I suggested a family meeting, which was something that we, we did with our own children when they were little. And, um, and we each talked about how we felt about it. And, my grandson had something that he really wanted to say, uh, and so he, he had to whisper it at first. He was not quite sure. He, we, he hadn't had as many family meetings in his life, <laughs> so he wasn't quite sure how to, how to say it. But what he wanted to say was that mommy was on the phone all the time. Oh. <laughs> and that's true. Kids, kids will say that. I'm looking at the research uh, on it now. Yeah. And because uh, I'm... I'm writing a book on adolescence, and I'm I'm just in the middle of writing the chapter on this, um, and uh, and he she said, well, I need it for my work, and he said, you don't use it just for work, <laughs> and he could list the times that she had used it for fun, for talking, you know, chatting with a friend wasn't about work, or yeah. for reading an article, um, she listening to a podcast, all of the things that. Yeah. My daughter does, and so she said it's not fair. You know, six-year-olds are into fairness. And she said, to her wonderful credit, you're right. And then uh, we said, okay, then we need a way that you're going to be able to put the, the – the problem comes is that you, you have trouble giving it up. What are your ideas? And so the idea is for him to list a number of ideas that would help him learn to give it up. So he's learning the skill of self-control. Much right. more important than whatever he's doing on the um, on the on the the phone or the iPad right then. Yeah. And then, um, and in fact, I, I have a I have a reading game on the iPad, so he, he really uses that educationally. Uh, yeah. A wonderful a wonderful tool to that helps uh, helps with phonics and and uh, sound and 
uh, those sorts of things helps with sight words and phonics and lots of fun to play great books on it so um so he came up with with a plan of how he was going to use it and then because he set the plan he's much more likely to follow it yeah so what were his his, can i ask what his um ideas were his idea was that um that he would always have a plan for what he was going to do next when it when it was going to be the time was over oh my god that's so smart Yeah. yeah That's so great. And it's also just like using the problem of a child really being like, for lack of a better word, addicted to the screen um, and just turning it into an opportunity to say like, you're going to have things you really want to do in your life, but that you can't do all the time. Right. And and so that is great. Um, and then you have another meeting. So this is an iterative process for parents, but you're teaching the skill. So I think that discipline challenges are skill building opportunities and in fact a free resource that we will have on our new website are called skill building opportunities and they take issues like screen time and fighting in the car and picky eaters and um kids who don't pay attention and all all of the typical um behavior challenges that parents and teachers have and turn them into opportunities to promote a skill that's amazing that would be great for really great resource for parents right yeah let's talk about perspective taking this is something that early childhood teachers are definitely very interested in um, as we work with kids to, like, see the point of view of others. Mm-hmm. And, and like, um, problem solving all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Social negotiations. <laughs> well, perspective taking is understanding how you feel and think and how other people feel and think and how it can be the same and different. So it's different than the golden rule. Uh, because someone else may think or feel differently than you do. Mm-hmm. And it's different than empathy because it involves thinking as well as feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's more than both of those things. Uh, it is, uh, perspective taking has been, been found very critical in school readiness and school success. If you understand what the teacher wants and, and is saying or, or expecting, if you understand what your parents are expecting, if you understand what the other kids are expecting, you're much more likely to be able to solve conflicts with other kids and, uh, and, and hold your own but learn to cooperate uh, as well. And it's also critical in reading readiness if you think about it because if you understand the character's point of view in the book, um, then uh, you're, you know, you're a step ahead. You're understanding literature. You're a step ahead. Right, like comprehension. Yeah. And all of so that. So how can you do it? It's easy. I mean, yes. pretty, pretty much any situation you have, you can say, what do you think um, that that child is thinking? What do you think that child is feeling? You're, you're watching a movie. You're watching TV. You're mm. talking about a family situation. You're reading a book. You're, I mean, a million times a day, there are opportunities to ask your child to do perspective taking. That's, yeah. yeah, that's great. And what about a child who really struggles with um, taking the perspective of, of others? What if there's um, maybe you have a student in your classroom who's really working on um, not being physical when they're playing and they're, they're not really aware of maybe that they're being overly rough um, with their friends, but um, they are. And so what, how could you help them to take perspective? Um, you can help them take perspective um, by having them listen to another child, say how they feel, 
Mm-hmm. So if two ki- if one kid has shoved another kid, um, maybe for a good reason, but it didn't seem like no. I mean, it didn't seem like a good reason. The hostile attribution bias is probably one of the biggest reasons for uh, for fighting and in, in, in among children. This is the research of Ken Dodge and Larry Aber. Can yeah, talk uh, about that. What is that? That means that you assume that someone else has a hostile intent toward you. Yeah. That that other kid pushed you on purpose. Yes, uh, yes. Rather than really knowing what's going on. So we if you see that a lot. Yeah, if you just say, okay, let's sit down for a minute. And if it's too if it's too heated, you can't do it right away, mm-hmm. but you could say, let's let's just stop for a minute and say what you were thinking, say what you were thinking. And then you then if they understand each other and can hear each other's voices, it can help. And then how can you manage? That's back to self-control. All of these skills build on each other. But how when someone pushes you, how are you going to manage next time besides pushing back? Oh, I love that. And then having them come up with the maybe some mm-hmm. ways, if they can, or help them brainstorm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Because I think that we need to just weave in the opportunity to promote these life skills in everything we do. We're giving the kids a gift for life if we can infuse life skills not as a little separate curriculum, but as just a part of our everyday activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this feels like the bulk of our job. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, as far as like working on these skills within everything we do. I always use this example, but like when you have a child who's like yelling in the classroom and then you're on the other side of the classroom and you want them to like stop yelling and you can say, you could shout at them, stop yelling, or you could walk over to them and uh-huh. quietly say like, hey, your voice is really loud and like really explain to them and model too uh-huh. at the same time. Uh-huh. And I know you talk actually a lot about modeling um, in the next skill, which is communicating. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how modeling plays into that. Yes, I, I, it, it absolutely does. I mean, the kids are learning more from what we do than what we say. Yeah. If uh-huh. we're if we're harsh and we tell them to be kind, they're gonna learn harsh. Right, we're like, be nice. That's not yeah. Yeah. yeah, they they get it. They 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 know hypocrisy when they see it. Totally. As we all do. Exactly. So, like, in terms of communicating um, for young children, like, what are some ways that you can promote that as a teacher? Uh, communicating is understanding what you want to communicate and how it will be received. So it's more than literacy. Um, and it can be in art and music and in other ways it doesn't have to be just literary based mm-hmm. or literacy based um, giving kids a chance to, um, to to express themselves particularly in a texted world um, helping, helping um, young people find ways to communicate all going on a trip and then and then either dictating or, or writing down what happened or drawing a picture about what happened and then sharing that with other kids, learning to share that. I know that when my children were learning to uh, read and write at Bank Street, they kept a journal. And uh, every day at meeting time, kids would take turns reading their journal of what they were learning, what they were doing. And that gave them a huge practice in being articulate about what they feel or think and in um, hearing how their messages are received. You don't have to go to communications training when you're an adult. You can learn it when you're a kid. Or I once saw, it's, this is in the book, but I once saw an incredible example 
at the Har- um, um, at the Har- Harlem Children's Zone, Jeff Canada's created program, um, where the kids were talking about how you start a story, and they took their favorite books and they looked at the first sentence in it, and they talked about why it worked, or, or in some cases why it didn't work, and then what would you want to do for a first sentence? So things oh, like that. Cool. Kinds of, isn't that cool? I love yeah, that. Yeah, that. Such a good idea. Um, so kind of like what you're saying is like a way that you could promote communication is like almost like within what the children are maybe interested in or studying. Um, obviously not every child can write or, you know, even, um, but they can dictate, right. They can write, they can dictate. And so we can take down their words and then the next step would be to have them share it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Or, or you, yeah. Or a picture. Um, and it, it, and it can be scribble scrabble. It doesn't have to be look like an airplane if it's about an airplane. Love it. (laughs) And it doesn't have to be, they don't have to read the words, but maybe they could read one word, maybe their name in the story and you could read the rest Mm -hmm. if they're, if they're not reading it, that makes them want to read. They say, oh my gosh, those little marks on a paper, they, they, they're my words. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And I think also it's important for like teachers to give that like a lot of, um, importance, like Mm -hmm. children's work, um, Mm -hmm. because that is going to also like, I think, Mm um, enhance their confidence yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. let's talk about making connections making connections is seeing how things are the same and different it's uh what's similar what's different um it's a basic skill because all our knowledge systems are based on symbolic representation the stand for uh, relationships so um math stands for quantities of objects and how they relate to each other. That's a stand for relationship. Those numbers, those uh, functions that we do with math. Uh, language is based on the sounds that we say and uh, how they translate to symbols and then uh, how we decode those symbols and, and or concepts and what they mean or analogies and what they mean. So uh, knowledge is built on making connections and making that, learning that skill uh, explicit, helping having kids sort, having kids look at what's the same and what's different how do those how does a b and a d look uh the same and how do they look different uh if they're in small letters how's the six and a nine look different and the same uh how can you remember those um those those sorts of things helping how many people are going to be at lunch how many places do we need to sit or at snack time so um there there are endless opportunities making unusual connections is the basis of creativity Ooh, i like that and we want that yeah, that's very cool. And I also think communi- going back to communication, um, like verbalizing when you're with a young child um, what they're doing and, and maybe what you think they might be noticing can really like foster their ability to make connections. Mm-hmm. And like help with their language. Mm-hmm. So is there any like other ways you can think um, for teachers to help their students make connections, young students? Oh, there are endless ways. Just even here's a basket. Put all the big things in this basket and all the little things in that basket. Awesome. So just like really that, think about the that's distinctions. A, that's, that, that's a test of executive functions for three and your, three-year-olds, two-year-olds. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk that more basket about that? sorting game is is uh, is a is a uh, is a standardized measure for for assessing kids' executive functions. Oh, really? Yeah. 
I feel like it's all so interconnected. So yeah, all of these are <laughs> very back. like they are. They all build on each other. I yeah. mean, we did them in an order. I did them in an order on purpose because they build on each other. Focus and self control being kind of the core skills that you build out yeah. from. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I f- yeah, I feel like naturally you just. I feel like naturally you do a lot of the making connections with kids throughout a daily basis, whether it be like with text or sorting, um, and you kind of have to really think about it if you. It, I feel like you don't think about it all the time. You know, you're well, just naturally I, I, doing you know, What my goal was to help right? help teachers and parents put on a new set of glasses, so to speak, to yeah. see the world in a different way. Yeah. You can see the skills that are a part of everyday life. And they are, and we do promote them. Uh, some kids get more of that experience because they have parents who do it or teachers right. who do it, even if they do it, even if they do it um, intuitively without really seeing what they're doing the more we can do it intentionally and joyfully I don't think it should be this drudgery thing mm-hmm. um, it uh, we're gonna help kids because these are real learning skills totally um, here's a big one critical thinking I feel like yes. that was like a word I heard like constantly all throughout school it was like <laughs> let's practice critical thinking skills and I was like I don't know what that is but okay <laughs> let's see Uh, Critical thinking is the search for valid and accurate information. And that is something that is fundamental because we take action based on what we believe and think. So if we're basing our action on something that's not actually accurate, it's detrimental to us. Um, And it can be everything from from my favorite example is when um, my grandson was a baby and he got a high fever. and my daughter gave him um, Tylenol or Advil, I can't remember, and he spit it up, and then you don't know what to do, and it's a, it's a holiday weekend, and no doctors are answering. Mm. And so, do you give it to him again? Are you overdosing him? He's a little right. tiny baby. Right. <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. You know, this was kind of life or death, and she went on the internet and found 15 different answers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this isn't trivial. having a, and, and we live in a world where there's a lot of talk about fake news and yeah. and uh, truthiness and those sorts of things. We really need to know what's accurate and and have way and and so much of knowledge is based on on understanding what is to the best of our knowledge accurate information. And as far as as people have progressed in understanding their world, so uh, I think that there are endless opportunities to promote critical thinking. Um, Probably the main one is not answering children's questions when they ask us, but turning it around to help them find the answers if we can. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. And that promotes curiosity. If adults, we tend to think that knowledge is telling people. Yeah. If adults answer children's questions quickly, they move on. They lose interest. That's yep. one of the things that takes the fire out of their eyes. If we help them learn to find the answers, we're teaching them not only to be learners, but to find the answer. And then to think critically in that process. So, uh, where we can, um, not asking and not answering questions. That's awesome. And then I know for the sake of time, we probably should just get through taking on challenges. If you want to talk a little bit about that one, I do. Taking on challenges means uh, more than coping with stress. Let me start by saying children need to learn to cope with stress. Stress is a part of our lives protecting children from stress, removing it from their lives, fixing things for them, which sometimes in a well-meaning way we have a tendency and a desire to do, doesn't really help them learn how to cope 
coping is managing something that happens to you. Taking on a challenge is the second phase of that, which is being active. It's trying that hard thing. It's, it's going into this situation that's a little scary. It's learning how to do that, um, to, to read that book or um, try that particular problem, in, science problem in school or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So taking on challenges is really the, is, is uh, what Carol Dweck would be calling have a, having a growth mindset. It's knowing that we can learn and we can do things um, and we can make mistakes. And I think um, uh, I just was reading research about how critical making mistakes is to children's uh, learning. I've, this is research in adolescence on trial and error learning. The kids who are good at, at, at looking at what they didn't do right and figuring out how to do it right next time are the kids who really uh, do better in math and, and literacy, according to this experiment, um, who, are, who are really much better learners. So we have to let children make mistakes. And I was looking at a video that we're doing right now where someone said Edison tried hundreds of times to make a light bulb, and every time he learned um, what to do in making the next light bulb. So mistakes are fundamental to learning, particularly uh, any learning that's breakthrough. So how do we help children um, learn to take on challenges, um, help them set goals and then try things that are just a little bit hard? Or if there's a problem, as we were talking about in the classroom, uh, helping them begin to solve it, not fixing it for them. So I think it's if we can sit on, if we can use our own self-control and not fix things for kids or protect them from things that are hard, uh, but help them learn to manage it and show them that they are learning to manage it, we will help uh, kids uh, be the kind of thinkers that we need in a world where you can Google for information. So simply memorizing information and spinning it back, which may have been what learning was in the, in the 19th century, is not what learning is in the 21st century. Totally. Because um, we know that kids get a little overwhelmed, I think, um, if they don't have like some guidance sometimes, but um, I think too, like this is that's a great way to like help them take on a challenge is to kind of um, scaffold it. Yeah, scaffold it. Yes, absolutely. A child who's learning to do something, trying that hard thing, will practice, practice, practice. Thinking of, think about kids learning to walk. They mm-hmm. fall down, they get up. Yeah. <laughs> they try again. They fall down, they get up, they try again. Or even learning to ride a bike with Zay when he learned to ride a two-wheeler, he went to the skate park, and for two and a half hours, he rode around dodging the skateboarders, uh, and they were so kind to him, because he was a little kid, and they were big kids, uh, but he, he just practiced for two and a half hours in the in the burning sun. He was so determined yeah. to learn right. to ride a bike, so um, that is, uh, so giving them those opportunities to try something that's new and practice, we don't learn things, we don't learn executive function skills without practicing them like anything else. Um, Being a self-directed, engaged learner is the culmination of it all. We want people who can be self-directed learners. I just had a friend who's getting ready to retire call me and say, what should I do with the next stage of my life? (laughs) She didn't ask it that directly, but she was thinking about, um, she's always, she's had a very meaningful career, won lots of awards, been quite an innovator. And, um, and together we brainstorm what, what she might do, but we want people who will be self-directed. That's what we want. Mm-hmm. Knowing how to make a real contribution when you're in your 80s or 90s is as important to knowing how you're going to make a real contribution when you join the workforce. 
Totally. So, so it's setting goals, being accountable for them, uh, uh, having them meaningful and purposeful, um, important to you. Um, all of those things that teachers can do. Yes, the work that a lot of teachers do, um, like in Reggio inspired settings, um, really is built on like children finding out what they're interested in and then kind of making their own path for that. Yes, and it doesn't mean that it's a it's a laissez faire curriculum. Right. I mean, my my daughter was always interested in women and girls, and so whatever her class was studying, let's say they were studying. Um, the Native Americans who lived in Manhattan a long time ago, she'd be interested in how, what was the life of women and girls in... Right. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that's valuable information for like, yeah. not only her, but her classmates, and it's a way for her right. to access what the rest of the class is doing. Yeah, so she was genuinely interested in it, but she could manage to uh, to figure out how to, how to fit it into whatever curriculum the class was studying. I love that. Well, um, thank you for taking the little bit of extra time. Yeah, we really so appreciate much. it. We're so excited to get this episode edited, and we think a lot of people will um, take a lot from it. Um, is there anything you want uh, people to know about the book or about um, any like social media things that you have going on where they can access you, anything like that? Yes. Um, we joined the Bezos Family Foundation and are able to offer so many of our resources free and online. So we will have a curriculum, online curriculum, where uh, people can learn about Mind in the Making, um, the, the research uh, where we'll share the science and help mm-hmm. people develop their own skills and promote the skills in children. We um, have skill-building opportunities on our website uh, so that people can take the behavior challenges and turn them into opportunities to promote skills. We have a list of books that we developed with First Book that are free resources um, okay. where you can talk about how to read books in ways that promote life skills. Uh, we have, we'll be sharing the research on a regular basis and, and uh, writing columns and so forth. And then uh, we um, oversaw the development of Room. Uh, at the foundation, at the Bezos Family Foundation, B-R-O-O-M. And those are more than a thousand tips that people can use to take everyday moments, the time you already have with children, and turn them into brain-building moments that promote these life skills. That's fantastic. Yeah, these are amazing resources. We will be sure to like look into it, and then um, we'll post that on our blog so we, our listeners have access. Right. It's right. wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for talking Thank to us. You. Have a great day, Ellen. My pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. You too. Thanks Thank for asking. You. So that's our show. If you would like to learn more about Ellen and the work she does, you can head over to www.thereflectiveteacherpodcast.com. That's our website, and on it we post show notes for each episode and resources so you can learn more about each topic we discuss. While you're there, make sure you subscribe to our mailing list so you can stay up to date on all things Reflective Teacher Podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at the Reflective Teacher Podcast or find us on Facebook under the same name. Thanks for listening.